Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present John Foster, a Canadian petroleum economist who explains why the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and Europe's need for Russian natural gas is a key element in the unfolding crisis in Ukraine. Angela Robinson, a retired Connecticut Superior Court judge, now a visiting professor at Quinnipiac University, who discusses why she believes critical race theory and any discussion of race in schools has become a top right-wing target. And Ramon Garcia, a formerly incarcerated prison reform activist who talks about his own experience in solitary confinement that led him to campaign to end the practice in U.S. prisons. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Thousands of leftist protesters marched through Buenos Aires, Argentina, on February 8th, objecting to a new bailout agreement with the International Monetary Fund totaling $45 billion in debt that the government can't pay back. Rising tensions over the deal within the ruling Peronist party led the son of former presidents Nestor Kirchner and Cristina Fernandez to resign from a key party post. High-level talks between Argentina and the IMF were conducted last year to revamp the failed 2018 $57 billion bailout negotiated under conservative President Mauricio Macri with support from the Trump administration. After the record bailout, the local currency crashed and inflation spiked 50 percent. Argentina has had a hostile relationship with the IMF for over 20 years. The IMF cut off Argentina's credit in 2001, pushing the nation into default and forcing a steep devaluation of the national currency. The New Deal requires the government to eliminate the budget deficit in three years and slash energy subsidies. Juan Carlos Giordano of the Socialist Left Party and member of the Argentine Chamber of Deputies asserted that the debt deal was akin to making working-class people foot the bill and that the funds should instead be used to pull people out of poverty. The agreement, which has not yet been finalized, must still be approved by Argentina's Congress and the IMF board. The Biden administration is launching a new crackdown on power plant pollution that includes limiting greenhouse gas, mercury, and other toxic emissions. This reversal of a 2020 Trump regime policy occurs as a U.S. Supreme Court case brought by the state of West Virginia could undercut the administration's ability to enforce regulations to protect public health. Biden has pledged that the U.S. electricity sector will be carbon neutral by 2035. Tom Kamar, an attorney working for several environmental groups, asserted that regulations to require power producers to bear the costs of their own pollution are decades overdue. Exposure to mercury, which drifts into the air from coal plants and settles in lakes and streams and then enters the food chain after being absorbed by fish, can harm brain development in babies and cause heart disease in adults. The Biden administration claims the cost of new power plant scrubbers that reduce toxic emissions will be offset by preventing disease and reducing premature deaths. 
The Coke Industries-funded American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, is pushing state laws that protect the fossil fuel industry against boycotts. Its goal, according to The Guardian, is to defend oil companies and other extractive industries from the growing movement for green investment. The bill developed by ALEC's Energy Task Force is modeled on legislation to punish companies supporting the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people. This year, the Energy Discrimination Elimination Act was introduced in West Virginia, Indiana, and Oklahoma. The draft bill claims banks and asset managers are denying financing to credit-worthy fossil fuel companies for the purpose of decarbonizing investor portfolios. Under these new laws that supporters say will fight back against woke capitalism, companies would have to certify that it is not boycotting fossil fuel companies in order to do business with a state government. In January, Texas started compiling a blacklist of corporations that it claims are refusing to do business with oil companies. At the top of the list was giant asset manager BlackRock, with $20 billion invested in Texas public sector pension funds. BlackRock denies it's boycotting the fossil fuel industry and, in fact, is a significant shareholder in oil and gas companies through index funds. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Diplomatic talks continue across Europe and the U.S. in an attempt to avert a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Although Russia has deployed more than 100,000 troops along Ukraine's border, Moscow has consistently denied there are any plans to invade. After U.S. President Joe Biden issued a specific warning that a Russian attack could be launched as soon as February 16th, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky responded by declaring February 16th a day of unity and praised the strength of the Ukrainian military. As part of the diplomatic offensive to prevent a possible invasion, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz scheduled a meeting with Russia's President Vladimir Putin on February 15th. Earlier, Scholz had met with President Biden in Washington to present a united front against a possible Russian attack. But while Biden explicitly declared that the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany wouldn't go forward if Russia invades Ukraine, Scholz declined to commit to ending the pipeline if an attack is launched. Your reporter spoke with John Foster, a Canadian petroleum economist who worked at the World Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, BP, and Petro-Canada. Here he discusses the danger of war in Ukraine and why the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and Europe's dependence on Russian gas is a key element in the unfolding Ukraine crisis. For me, the real danger is not the Russians attacking, which I don't believe they would. It's in their their worst interest to do that. Mm -hmm. The real danger is hothead militias in Ukraine attacking the Donbass, which uh, they did in uh, 2014, in which case Russia would come to Donbass's rescue if if they said they, they would. Uh, in what form, we don't know. It might be troops on the ground. It might not be because uh, Russia is right next door and they've got long-distance 
artillery and airplanes and whatnot. But if Russia came in in that fashion, it's like a bear trap. So Washington would insist on Western sanctions. And there are three or four sanctions on the table, uh, as, as I understand it. I don't see agreement between uh, NATO countries on them, but the, the ones that are being pushed from Washington would be that Germany cancel going ahead with Nord Stream 2, a completed pipeline, but awaiting certification by the regulatory authorities, so it's like they're in limbo. And the, the second one is how to pay for the gas, which, which brings in the, the swift financing mechanism. That's an idea that might be dropped. And the third one is putting sanctions on major Russian banks. If you do that, there's a big issue. How would Europe pay for the gas? And there's another thing. If there were a, a, a war of that kind, of whatever intensity, less or, less or more, what about the gas that goes through Ukraine to Europe from Russia? That's the old traditional way that gas went since the 1960s from the Soviet Union then to Europe. My belief would be that for reasons of safety, those lines would be closed. It would be shut down during the hostilities. So that would leave Europe in an absolute mess because if the European Union relies upon Russia for 40% or so, just over, of its gas. Then the question is, could they get gas from anywhere else in, in that quantity, which is a, big, a very, very big quantity? And in my view, the answer is no. Given the fact that Europe is dependent in large part on Russian natural gas for their energy needs, your understanding of the situation is that both Europe and Russia would lose if a conflict interferes with the flow of natural gas across borders there. Russia, a petrostate, gets a lot of money from European purchase of their gas. That's right. And, and on the other hand, Europe is uh, very dependent on Russia for its energy needs. If I'm reading this right, it seems both sides have more to lose than to gain if a war were to break out. Scott, that's the way I see it completely. It's like yin, uh, is it yin and yang, uh, or it takes two to tango. Uh, Russia wants to sell the gas. Europe wants to buy the gas. And uh, so they, uh, they each have a trading reason uh, uh, for the deal. And uh, if gas were cut off in this fashion, uh, but Nord Stream 2 not going ahead, gas uh, failing to uh, being shut down going through Ukraine, uh, Europe would have an economic crisis that is not experienced since, I guess, World War II. That, I think, to my mind, accounts for the press conference, which was really quite uh, fascinating to read the transcript of uh, at the White House uh, when uh, German Chancellor visited uh, Schultz. And in the uh, meeting the press afterwards in the, in the joint, uh, joint conference there, uh, German Chancellor Schultz refused to say uh, that he would cancel Nord Stream 2 if Russia were to attack Ukraine. But it was President Biden who said that the uh, U.S. would get Germany to cancel. So then the, there were, as I, as I watched it, there were three journalists who were, were trying to push Schultz on, on the matter. And he just stonewalled. He, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, admit with, uh, one way or the other as to what Germany would do in that circumstance. But just saying, we're, you know, we're, we're on track, we're, we're, all, we're all on the same message, uh, Germany, the U.S., and others. Presumably he's been in Kiev, and he'll be in Moscow. 
my sense of the matter is that it's because sanctions, if they were imposed, would hurt Germany, would hurt Europe uh, more than Russia and far more than the U.S. or, or Canada come to that, who would be pretty, fairly intact, other than the fact that world prices for gas, of course, would <laughs> go, shoot, go shooting up. That was John Foster, a Canadian petroleum economist and author of the book Oil and World Politics, the real story of today's conflict zones. Find a link to Foster's recent article on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in the Ukraine crisis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the past year, right-wing activists in the Republican Party have launched an aggressive attack on public education. Since January 2021, 37 states have introduced legislation or taken other actions that restricts teaching critical race theory and or limits discussions of sexism, sexual orientation, and racism in the classroom. Many of these laws target funding for school districts or threaten to extract money from school employees for failing to comply with the policy. A large number of the proposed bills prohibit teachers from talking about diversity and inequality in so-called divisive ways or taking sides on controversial issues. Many of these bills also ban books in school libraries that address gender identity and sexuality, bolster parents' rights to review curriculum and instructional material, and impose restrictions on what school sports teams transgender students can join. Although critical race theory is not taught in any U.S. public elementary, middle, or high school classes, GOP activists are using the graduate-level course as a key talking point in their long-running culture war designed to sow fear, division, and win votes. Your reporter spoke with Angela C. Robinson, a retired Connecticut Superior Court judge who's now a visiting professor at Quinnipiac University, where she teaches evidence and critical race theory. Here, Judge Robinson explains what critical race theory is and why she believes it's become a top right-wing target. Critical race theory is really um, an academic movement that takes place in graduate school. Um, you know, there are very few undergraduate colleges that even offer a class called critical race theory. I think the latest stats show only about 300 colleges in America offer critical race theory classes, and that's out of about 4,000 colleges and universities. So it's really something you're going to encounter at the graduate school level, and it is a movement that seeks to understand the interplay of the law initially. It started in legal academia and race. So when it was founded in 1989, it was to try to understand what role the law played in maintaining and defining race in order to disrupt racial hierarchy. So it is not about trying to establish a hierarchy of one race over the other. It's very much about trying to dismantle the, the hierarchy altogether. But essentially, it is an approach, a movement, a perspective that says we have to address the issue of race in order to really achieve equity in our country. It's true that there are literally no elementary, junior high, or middle school, or high schools that teach a critical race theory. Tell us about what you think the motivation and the goal is here of activists on the right and Republicans generally 
taking a very hard position against critical race theory when it's not even taught in public schools. And thank you for underscoring that. It is absolutely not something that is taught in primary or secondary school. I think really this is a movement to try to stop conversations about race. I think it's a way to try to maintain a status quo where a certain kind of education and a certain kind of perspective is presented to the exclusion of others. And um, unfortunately, we've seen this happen before. Race is the use is a tool that is often used to divide us. And now that we're getting to the point of actually beginning to teach and explore the truth of our racial history as a country, um, there's great resistance to that. What about pushing back? What do you think parents and other people in their own communities who are confronting prohibitions on the teaching of anything to do with America's racial history, slavery, and the civil rights movement, on and on and on, what should people in communities be doing to push back against the folks who want to see these things censored from school curriculums? Well, I hope that most well-meaning, well-informed parents are going to push back against censorship in general. Um, and so that, I think, is the first step, because we, we should not become a society that only allows certain voices and certain perspectives to be taught if we want to be enlightened. But the other thing I think parents can do is become better informed about race themselves. We really do not formally educate ourselves about race and race history. And I think in order to actually combat and push back against, you need to be armed with facts. And so I am I'm working on a book now on critical race theory for the non-academic, so for people who want to learn more about it. And one of the chapters that I talk about is dismantling myths, legends, and lies. You know, and so when we begin to actually just go back and learn our history and learn the myths that we've been taught, we can begin to talk back to some of the people who are arguing against what they call critical race theory. Judge Robinson, at the same time, we've seen this push against critical race theory and the teaching of race relations and racial history in America. We've also seen blacklists of books being pushed by folks who want to see books uh, removed from school libraries and the prohibition of uh, all manner of discussion of race, sexual preference, and a whole range of issues that are, are very much at the forefront of the Republican culture wars. Never thought I'd live to see the day when we would be having such a serious discussion about censorship. And one of the things I think is so dangerous about it is that it is um, a gateway. So we hear a lot about the movement against critical race theory, but what we hear a little bit less is that most of the bills and legislation that are being passed at the state level are not only trying to ban critical race theory, but any discussion about sexism or patriarchy. And so the attacks are not just to stop talking about race. They're to stop talking about sexism. They're to stop talking about gender identity issues. I hope we mobilize and confront the efforts to 
silence and censor because I'm an educated person and I think education leads to liberation. My job is not to try to persuade you that you should adopt the critical race theory perspective. My job is just to show you what it is and then you can look and determine for yourself. That was Angela C. Robinson, a retired Connecticut Superior Court judge who's now a visiting professor at Quinnipiac University. Learn more about the right-wing attack on public education and critical race theory by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 2021, 32 states in the federal government introduced legislation to ban or restrict the use of solitary confinement. At least six states passed bans and major restrictions, including Arkansas, Colorado, Kentucky, New York, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. Last year, the Connecticut General Assembly passed legislation to greatly reduce the use of solitary confinement in its prisons and jails. But Governor Ned Lamont vetoed the bill claiming it would create unsafe conditions for both inmates and staff, although data shows reducing the use of solitary increases safety for all. Instead, Governor Lamont issued an executive order to address some of the concerns of advocates who say the measures don't go far enough and aren't uniformly enforced. The group Stop Solitary Connecticut, along with the formerly incarcerated, their family members and community advocates, are now working to pass the bill again, with the inclusion of an oversight commission, as Connecticut is just one of a few states without one. At a February 9th rally at Connecticut State Capitol, on opening day of this year's legislative session, speakers emphasized that as Lamont, a Democrat, is running for re-election, he's counting on support from voters in communities of color in cities where most incarcerated people live. One of the speakers at the rally was Ramon Garcia a formerly incarcerated prison reform activist who shared his personal harrowing story of spending time in solitary and why he's working to transform the system. So when I was um, 18, it was like um, when the states were uh, replicating um, the federal crime bill um, in order to get funding. So in 1999, Connecticut was... um, uh, um, it was exploding with, with the prison population. So I was 18 years old. So I was incarcerated for a, a violation, a probation, nonviolent offense. So they, they chained me up. They brought me to HCC, um, Hartford County Correctional here on Western Street. So after being there for about a week um, in the gym, I was called brought to um, shipping and receiving and told that I was being transferred due to the overcrowding. So I had no idea where I was going. Um, They chained me up, put me in a red jumper and brought me all the way to Uncasville, Connecticut, which is uh, by the casino. Um, They had about 100 people there on um, gymnasium floor uh, there were people having seizures. 
There were people <laughs> sick, people were sleeping on the floors, there were fights breaking out, and they only had two bathrooms for a hundred people. So uh, I ended up catching the flu, and um, I woke up after about 16 hours with just chaos around me, and um, I was gonna urinate on myself. Um, so I ran to the bathroom, and I used the bathroom, I relieved myself, and the corrections officer said that I, I violated uh, safety and security. So from then, I, like a couple days later, it was my birthday. They uh, called me down. They told me that I was going to solitary confinement for using the bathroom. And this is supposed to be the place where they put the worst of the worst. So they chained me up. They stripped me naked after, uh, before they chained me up. There was a corrections officer that was uh, making uh, sexual um, statements towards me. He was telling me, you know, um, not to get graphic, but to grab my, my stuff and then stuff my fingers into my mouth. From what I last heard, this guy is a lieutenant now, a supervisor. And so they chained me up. They put me in the elevator facing the corner, about five guards. They stuck me um, in a dark room with no windows. I had no idea where I was at in the building, and they left me there for about a week without a shower. They took me out one time uh, to their small courtyard area, which is on the roof, overlooking the highway. I've never been the same since. I really don't like to be in dark places. Uh, my emotional well-being has never been the same. Uh, they create these conditions Anytime someone has an issue with their cellmate and you ask for a cell change, most of them will tell you, supervisors, the only cell change you're going to is solitary confinement. I had to use the phone one time a week with chains, and when we would go out to wreck at 7 in the morning, even in the freezing cold for about 40 minutes, they would put me and my cellmate in a, in a kennel, a real kennel, and as we walk back and forth, just a couple of feet, you can just hear the shackles just dragging on the floor, okay? And this is for defending myself after uh, bringing it to their attention that I was scared for my life, and they did nothing. So they do it nonchalantly, they weaponize the correction system, the racists. Most of them are from these rural areas and they've never been in contact with people of color like myself, and they weaponize it, just like they do out here. And the majority of the people that's in solitary confinement and what have you, they look like people like me, brown and black people. That was Ramon Garcia, a formerly incarcerated prison reform activist, speaking at a February 9th rally at Connecticut's Capitol, advocating for passage of a bill to end or restrict the use of solitary confinement in the state's prisons. Learn more about the campaign to end solitary confinement nationally by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website, 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, WLSL in St. Leo, Florida, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.